0: Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. Poet Molly McCully Brown's prize-winning first collection, The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-minded* is about a real state-run residential hospital for people with serious mental and physical disabilities that was the epicenter of the American eugenics movement in the first half of the 20th century. All the poems are in the voices of imagined patients and staff on the colony grounds in the 1930s. The result is a beautiful and excruciating consideration of the theological meaning of the human body in all its imperfection and suffering. The New York Times critics named it a top book of 2017. If she'd been born in another time, Molly Brown might have been a patient at the Virginia Colony. She grew up just a short drive away from that facility, and she was born with cerebral palsy, severely physically disabled. Her twin sister, Frances, died hours after their birth. Brown's essay, Bent Body Lamb, originally published in Image 88 and our most-read essay of 2016, begins with the author and her mother lying in the dark heat of their Virginia home on a summer night. They are enduring together the physical torment of Molly's post-op leg convulsions. In a moment of despair and adolescent bravado, she was about 14 at the time, she turns to her mother and snarls, God isn't real and adds, with deliberate cruelty, this is all your fault." From the raw intimacy of that moment, the essay expands into a consideration of the meaning of bodily suffering, and then to a comic, tender, and profound narration of how an intellectual interest in religion led to sincere conversion during her MFA program to Catholicism. Brown has two more books forthcoming in 2020. In the Field Between Us, a collection of collaborative poems written with Susanna Nevison, and an essay collection called Places I've Taken My Body. We sat down at the Catholic Imagination Conference at Loyola University in Chicago to talk about her childhood in Virginia, the unexpected gifts of artistic friendship and collaboration, and how Catholicism responds, and doesn't, to the problem of the body.
1: And do you feel like that was the turning point moment for you where you have this very angry moment with your mother where you're, you're in excruciating pain and it's hot. You're in Virginia. You, I know you didn't have air conditioning. Yeah. You're yeah. in, like, full leg casts. <laughs> you're in... And you're angry. And you have this moment of just angry, almost spitefulness, where you proclaim that you don't believe in God. And there's, like, a bravado in that. Oh, and totally. There's an absolute course, adolescent and you, and bravado. And you address that in yeah. the essay where you're not you're critical of that claim but you look back is that I feel like that's really the moment where you
2: have to admit that you did believe in God and you're almost angry that you well, did so here's, yeah so I mean that's that that's the thing that is of course so true about so much adolescent bravado and and also so much so much bravado that is that is uh, you know instigated by I think that, I mean, it's the truth about Berlato in general, right, that's so often it's instigated, in fact, by its exact opposite, right? Like, the moments in which we are the most sort of, like, utterly certain certain (laughs) and utterly uncompromising and utterly unabashed and all those things are actually the moments in which we feel least sure, least safe, least least powerful, most fragile. Um, And I think... You know, that was certainly a moment in which I just felt like a sort of raw nerve, you know. And I was a child still, even though, of course, at, when you're that age, you, you have no conception of yourself as a child. You think, I'm a, I'm totally grown up, and I completely understand the way the world works. I was a child, and I was afraid, and I was hurting. And I and I knew, of course, that I was lying, and I did believe in God, and I was pissed the fuck off, you mm-hmm. know. And, and I took it out on my mother because she was the person on whom I could take it out. She was the person who to whom I could say, this is all your fault and I hate mm-hmm. you and who would love me anyway. She was maybe the only person in the world to whom I could say that and have them love me anyway.
0: Yeah. You know.
1: So the reason that you were in so much pain and having these surgeries is because you were born with cerebral palsy mm-hmm. and this essay talks about your origin story, being born a twin, the mm-hmm. surviving twin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Your sister Frances died
2: during the birth. She died about 36 hours later. She died when we were infants, yeah.
1: And you grow up with this, you know, the ghost twin. Totally. The sister who's sort of hovering next to you in all of your life as you grow, you, you can imagine her growing alongside of you. You have this other, the next section of the essay begins, the temptation is to say that having an identical twin who dies just after birth means living with the hieroglyph of loss carved into you from your earliest breath. There's this beautiful poetic moment, and then you're like, but that's melodrama. (laughs) And I just love, and this is something when I teach, I point this out. You have your beautiful sentence, your poetic way of framing your experience, but you have to be willing to test it and say but that's not quite right. <laughs> like, that's the beautiful way of looking at it, when really you want to dig deeper down below the surface yeah. and get to that next layer of meaning, which is what you continue to do in this essay. You'll make a statement, and then you'll be like, but no, it's really under there, and <laughs> yeah. go one step further. Yeah. And I love that way of holding your own feet to the fire.
2: Yeah, so I mean one thing is like just on a craft level, the essays that I love most, the writing I love most, is the writing in which you can see thinking and evidence and you can see the ways in which the the piece itself is an alive thing, right, and you can see the development that that led to it. And so I think there's there's one way of writing in which you you do that thinking. You say a thing and then you think, okay, is that right or no that's not right, or you revise and then and then you cut away what took you to arrive at what feels to you like, in fact, the true thing, or, like, what feels to you... But, in fact, for me, so often the the real thing that's interesting is in the, is in the sort of time that it takes to test yourself and the time that it takes to arrive and the time that it takes to, to have a thought or put a sentence together and then think, okay, what is, what's mm. actually happening there? And, you know, I, I wanted to leave that in evidence because especially in an essay that is about coming to and resisting and testing and succumbing to and needing and hating religious belief so much. It's all push and pull, right? Yeah. It's all back and forth. And so right. the essay needed, I think, to work just as a piece of art. That back and forth needed to be yeah. in evidence, you yeah. know? And
1: that section ends with, I'm utterly certain some version of Francis still
2: persists somewhere. Yes, yeah. a much more direct Sentence. Yeah, the thing that is the sort of artifice removed from it because yeah. that is, in fact, the only thing that I'm really truly, it's one of the very few things in my life that I'm really truly certain of. Mm-hmm. Most other things feel, you know, contrary to my adolescent bravado, feel extremely nebulous and, <laughs> and extremely uncertain and extremely complicated and you know, and and I feel like most of the time if I'm being really honest, it's you know, it's largely I'm throwing out my hands and being like, Well, who the hell knows? Yeah. You know, and that but that is the one thing in my life that I just I do not feel who the hell knows about. I, I feel definitely who the hell knows about the specifics of it. I feel like there's there's so much mystery there and there's so much uncertainty there and there's so many chasms there, but I can't ignore the fact that I feel some kind of constituted yeah. presence aside that Aside that loss and that absence and the way that those two things coexist, that mm-hmm. absence and that presence, that loss and that something else, mm-hmm. it's one of the major animating forces of my life. Yeah. That section ends with you coming to the
1: conclusion that if you believe Francis persists somewhere, then you have to believe in God. Even if you hate God. <laughs> even if you want to kill God. Which is such a beautiful turn on that first scene with your mother. Yeah. Where the person, like you said, the person you love and trust the most you just want to hurt her in that moment because of the pain that you're in and this beautiful parallel emerges between your mother and God between Francis and God um, between that absence and that persistent presence that you can't shake it's just so beautifully crafted and structured and yet you have stripped away all of the artifice to get to that point, even if you include the artifice before <laughs> you strip it away. You do. You see you thinking and battling with this on the page. It's a real wrestling match. It's just, it's beautifully done. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to talk a little bit about your religious background. Your ch- family didn't go to church regularly, but in college
2: you started going quietly to mass. My father grew up Catholic um, and is no longer is no longer practicing and has a very f- sort of fraught and frustrated Relationship, I think, with with the church and with a lot of that theology in his own life. But he he does sort of, I say, have a, a Catholic boy's love of saints and all their strangeness. You no, know, a Catholic
1: imagination. He has a Jews. Catholic. He has
2: a total. He has. My father has, in some ways, maybe the most Catholic imagination I know. He would probably be equal parts sort of thrilled and horrified by that <laughs> statement, but it's true. And my mother, I always say, you know, has a um, she has a lot of manners. That's and ma- like that's her religion. You know, goodness, <laughs> kindness. Gratitude, <laughs> oh, manners—that yes. is—that is the thing that my mother believes believes in yeah. very strongly. My mother is the, in some ways, the, the most humble person I know, the most full of humility person I know. Mm-hmm. She's the consummate agnostic. You know, she would never say, "I don't believe in." There's definitely not a god out there. I, I'm I'm sure that there's nothing, and she would never ever say. You know, I'm certain of a god, and um, and I know exactly what what it looks like. That neither of those things is in my mother's DNA. Yeah. She's much too humble for that's that. That's so
1: interesting. To think of agnosticism as the a, a humble stance. I think You're it's so right. I think it's
2: totally full. I think agnosticism mm-hmm. yeah. is utterly full of humility. It's in full. It's full of in some ways. I think more humility than I have. Like I am not humble enough to be right. an agnostic. I feel my own conviction too that's profound. So, like, that's so interesting. in rural Virginia, I'm about 20 miles away from Liberty University, which, uh, you know, just very broadly um, is the sort of major hub of uh, sort of Southern Baptist, fundamentalist, evangelical education. So that was... Kind of present religion that I grew up around. Religion meant evangelism. Religion meant absolute certainty. So in in my sort of upbringing, religious faith meant in, it meant environmental degradation. It meant suspicion of intellectualism. It meant yeah. a kind of utter uncompromisingness. And I I and I and I and I, I already knew that I did not believe in any of those things. And in mm-hmm. fact, I, I believed that they were forces for uh, you know what I would call evil in the world. But religion also meant in my youth it meant utter certainty that you you knew what was important in the world and you knew what your place in it was it meant um it, it meant real security it meant a, it meant a Christ with whom you had a personal relationship and whom you could ask to intervene to get your car out of the mud and he would hear you mm-hmm. you know and it meant a, it meant a Jesus who was like very human and super present in your like daily trials and tribulations. And even as I resisted all those other things that we talked about, I was like, man, that would be really nice. Yeah. Right? And that was and I think, um, you know, so I felt in my youth both a sort of resistance to this evangelicalism and a sort of like, oh, I know I believe something. And there's there's a there's something there that, right. that is that's magnetic. I think there yeah. is something magnetic about evangelism and I think and, and about that kind of evangelical faith. And I think you know, we can't really, we're not, we're not doing anybody any favors by pretending that that's not true. Right.
1: Did you talk to your parents about religion when you were growing up? Did you grill them? You, I mean, you were an, an extremely intelligent child, and you were not one to let, um, uh, you know, to pass up an intellectual barring match. Yeah. So I just imagine that there must have been discussions at some point. You
2: know, either. it's it's funny in my in my real youth, I don't remember there being a ton of talking about it. I think mm-hmm. I think in my in my in my real childhood, I, I I felt those things, and I certainly I missed Frances, and I felt her, and I wondered about God, and I wondered about whether there was any reason or meaning or whatever to be found behind the, the physical realities of my life and my mm. body, but I don't remember it, but I didn't, it didn't occur to me to grill grill my parents about any of that in some mm. ways I think we were, you know, we were all too busy being in the middle of trying to live with those realities you know, and, um, and I had two siblings and my parents had three small children and I had a lot of surgery and a lot of races and had to get up at five a.m. and do, yeah. you know, two hours of exercises before I went to school, and that was it, you know. And it it wasn't really until I was a teenager that I started, you know, reading about reading about belief, reading theology, getting interested and in, in mm-hmm. uh, you know, in was there a was there any kind of framework that I felt like I could I could figure out that felt true to, to the things that I was I was questioning yeah. and feeling, but I wasn't and my relationship with with my parents about religion has never been adversarial in any way and they were you know it, it's maybe, mystified is not the right word because i think they understood it they were mildly like this is not a thing that we would do if mm-hmm. we were you but we well we love you and we get it and we're you know and i think in some ways and all my parents have ever wanted it, is for me to to suffer as little as it, is possible so anything right. that 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 might mitigate that suffering. They're like, "Yep, great, do that. We love you. Whatever you need." I guess so. I'm like sitting here imagining that you're like a child going through these deep philosophical horrors about theodicy because you're in pain all the time. It's easy to to not just to romanticize suffering, but to sort of like to create on the page this sense that suffering is this thing that allows a lot of time for taking it apart, or you know, for interrogating it, or whatever. But the truth is, and anyone who has suffered in any serious way will tell you that when you're in the middle of suffering, when you are sort of actively in the densest part of of real, real true suffering, there's no room for anything other than the other than the living through it. Yeah. You know? Okay. I want
1: Another thing I love about the essay—it's so hard to write about prayer or religious experience or mystical experience in any way that
2: doesn't. Yeah, because you just sound dumb, page, right? You sound dumb.
1: <laughs> you sound kooky. You sound dumb. You sound woo-woo. Whatever. But you say it, and again, I think a lot of this is stripping away of artifice, and you have it as a almost as a kind of internal conversation. It's italicized in the text or you're learning to say things you're learning to explain being religious again This all quietly going to mass things saying I'm interested in religion not I'm desperate to feel close to God which seems like the internal you saying I'm desperate to feel close to God but externally to your friends you'd be like I'm very interested in religion which I get and I've used that line myself you say I'm attracted to ritual but really you know something transcendent happens when you pray the Hail Mary and you say I can actually feel the air heat up around me and you just leave it at that, and you move on. And it's like this; just it's just a fact, just dropped in. In the it's yeah, not
2: romanticized. It's that you don't try to recreate an experience and make the reader feel anything. Well, because it's you can't do, like if yeah. you could do that, then the the thing wouldn't in fact be what it is, right? And yeah. the thing is like I was. You know, I I am the child of, of academics. I was I was raised in, on a college campus, and I am and I you know and I I was a consummate student of literature from very yeah. young, and so I learned I learned the the sort of the language of of. Uh, of intellectual discourse is my first language, right? And so, like, yeah. I'm interested in religion is, like, the thing I know how to say. I was like, yep, can totally do that. But the language of, like, I believe in this sort of magical, mystical right. thing is a lot less comfortable. So talk to me
1: about how you became friends with Susanna Nevison and how your collaboration began.
2: So Susanna Nevison is another, is a poet, um, like like me. I feel like I haven't somehow said that out loud, mm-hmm. that I'm a poet, and, and so is Susanna. And our books won the same first book prize, two years apart. So Susanna won the, Susanna's first collection, Teratology, um, which is really beautiful, won the prize two years before my first collection did. And um, and that is a book, Teratology is a word that means both the study of uh, birth defects and also the study of monsters, um, which is oh. an amazing, that's like, there's an exercise in how wow. language works. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, um, and so Susanna's, Susanna's book is a kind of, um, mythic construction and exploration of of her own uh, experience with sort of ongoing surgical intervention uh, to treat the birth defects that she was born with as a child, and also of uh, her father was when he was a young man before she was born, really, 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 really terribly burned, uh, mm-hmm. and then had to be treated for that for that burn. Um, and it, it becomes a kind of uh, it's a really a world building exercise about about the world in which. You're sort of living in in bodies in the aftermath of these these things. So,
1: how did that the friendship translate into working together and
2: creating these projects together? Was that a did your correspondence come first? It, it started as a big joke. We you know we had we were pretty much we pretty immediately once we had met, it was clear that like we were going to be wonderful readers for each other's work, right? And that we wanted to be wonderful readers for each other's work. And so we started exchanging poems pretty immediately after we met, um, and and exchanging edits on those poems, and, and having a, a, you know, a really consistent sort of correspondence about our own work, and we were both, we were both at that point trying to finish projects that we, and that, that went on probably for, all, you know, almost a year, and then we were at a point where we were both trying to finish or work on projects that we were, uh, would rather have avoided, <laughs> uh, because they were complicated and hard, and... Mm-hmm. Um, So instead we were like, well, okay, let's just start writing letters. Um, Let's see what happens. And so we did. And I... It, it's funny how fast it went from being a joke to not being a joke because i think at least for me like immediately when i started writing i had this sense of like oh this is actually this is really interesting and this is really moving and this is a world that is incredibly easy for me to access because all of a sudden i'm like not engaging in any translation on the page and i'm just writing for this person who i know and i love in this language that i i speak innately and then i think for us the real test was like we wrote Um, You know, we wrote several letter poems back and forth, just, like, in our email. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we were like, okay, well, now we have to see whether anyone (laughs) cares about these. Can also enter into this
1: conversation. Can also enter into this conversation,
2: right? Like, is it actually tenable to have written this book in which we don't engage in any translation, in which we do just speak directly to one another? And, like, are there entry points for readers out there? Like, does this mean anything to anyone who isn't us? Mm -hmm. And we got really lucky because... we sent some poems. I think, I think Diode was the first journal where we, we'd sent poems from the project. Um, and, and immediately they wrote back and they were like, yeah, we want to publish six of these. And we were like, yeah. oh,
1: okay. Um, and that must have been such an amazing feeling in that you are finally able to write in, about your experience in your body in a way where you aren't crafting it for a reader who cannot access that because it's not their experience. You're talking to someone who can enter that conversation with you, so there must have been a level of intimacy there that yes. you hadn't been able to achieve, because you always feel like you're having to translate for the other. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I love the idea that collaborating with another artist who you have a deep connection with kind of restores a sort of playfulness and oh, absolutely buoyancy to the work that can be so grueling when you're doing it alone. Yeah. I think there's something to be said for collaboration in that way
2: that you can restore playfulness to work that just becomes so. It does because it's thriving. a. I mean, it's a dark book. You know, it's mm-hmm. a book that's a lot about. Um, it's a lot about suffering, and it's mm-hmm. a lot about pain, and it's a lot about alienation, but. Because we were doing it together, it, it was also—it's ultimately like an incredibly hopeful book because there's always an answering voice, you yes. know. And also, I mean, it, it was a book in which, like, we we would joke very quietly, like, you know, there are figures in the book who are who sort of are both are and, and are not in some way us because we're constructing them and building them on the page, and yeah. you know, and so so things would things would happen to these these figures in the poem, and Susanna would you know she would text and she would she would be like, I sent you a poem, I killed us again, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I we would laugh, right. and we would laugh about these things that I would never laugh about with another person. Right. Because alone, they were just horrible, <laughs> yeah. you know. But all of a sudden, shared, they became this this sort of force of of real connection and real humor and real. You know, I laugh. At, I laugh with Susanna about things that you know I I could never laugh with uh, about another person, and that's that's really amazing. That's beautiful.
1: Okay, let's go back to Virginia yeah. and talk about the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics
2: and the Feeble Minded. Yeah.
1: When did you start working on that book? So the
2: Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, I should say, is a real place that was a government-run residential hospital that in the early, mid-1900s was one of the major hubs of the American eugenics movement. Um, And so what that means is that thousands and thousands of people who either had or were perceived to have a variety of physical and neurological and intellectual disabilities were forcibly committed and forcibly sterilized there, not only without their consent, but often without their knowledge. They were told that they were being given appendectomies um, and were sterilized instead. And it is it is one of many facilities like it throughout the country. It is rare in that it is one of the few facilities where mass sterilizations took place that is still operational as a residential facility for adults with very serious disabilities. Although it is in the process of being closed down, and that is its own fraught thing. But I grew up, you know, not very far from this place. And I knew in my childhood about it. It had this complicated history tangled up with Appalachia and the Great Depression. You know, and that, that was... Uh, You know, and so it was this sort of, like, this, you, you, I thought about it, like, sort of the way you think about the back of your hand, like, kind of unconsciously, this, like, thing that, that, that relates to you, but is, but also sort of doesn't in this weird way, because one really noticed the back of your hand, you know, it wasn't until I was in college I was home for the summer, um, actually, or or I was back in Virginia for the summer, actually taking theology classes at the university an hour north of where I grew up, Um, and I had a friend who was going through a really hard time and just, like, needed a distraction one day, Um, and so I thought, okay, like, just, we'll go, we'll, like, do, we'll do, like, tour of my, like, one stoplight hometown. We decided, because I think we we had her dog with us, I think, and maybe the dog needed to pee, or, like, we we just, like, we drove by the sign for for Colony Road, which is the road that the, the, the... um, facilities on. It's still called Colony Road, which is hilarious, um, even though the facility has, of course, been renamed. So the facility is this, like, f- really fascinating combination of a ghost town, of everything that it has been, wow. and a functioning facility. And it's like a literal palimpsest oh, wow. in this way that you can just see all of these realities through it, which is amazing. um and, and so we drove through, and, and I think immediately I was like, oh, this is not, A, a not going to be funny. This is not fun. And <laughs> A, this is not funny. This is not, a f- and, and, like, oh, shit. Also, this is a thing that I'm never going to forget about yeah. now. Right? Wow. And so at, at that point, the place was sort of tugging at me, and I was interested. Like, went home and did a little bit of Googling, and I learned about... Carrie Buck, who it was the name was an you know, a former colony inmate um, at the height of the sterilization movement, and she was the named plaintiff in the Supreme Court case Buck v. Bell, which is the Supreme Court case that made eugenic sterilization legal in the United States. Um, and she was picked because essentially it was she was a ringer, right? Like the idea was like this will be a test case. You know, they'll find in favor of making it legal for us to sterilize her, and then that'll make that'll make you know that'll set a legal precedent for these sterilizations and so she was an inmate so i read a little bit about her um and uh, and the and the history of the place and um and i thought okay well this is fascinating and complicated and but I, it took me and then i did and then i just sort of you know in the way that writers do like put it in my f- giant file of material and and, and mm-hmm. moved on um but it, and it wasn't until a couple of years later i was living in texas between college and graduate school and i was having a really hard time reckoning with my own life and my own disabled body and my sense of the future and what was I doing and how did you be a writer if you weren't in school and what did any of those things look like and um, and I just thought oh, I'm gonna I was like casting around for work that felt like it mattered you know and, and then I started I sort of went back to the research and I started writing this project and pretty much as soon as I like got serious about doing the research for it and writing it it was like the the book was pouring out of me and I like didn't I had opened this floodgate and I was like oh god and then then I was in it you know and it is kind of
1: an amazing um meeting of poet and content (laughs) in terms of it seems like a book you were meant to write which is why I ask yeah was it always there was it was it and it's so interesting to hear that it was just a chance pull off yeah, yeah, it right. was. Really,
2: it really was a chance trans- with a friend, and then yeah, you just kind of yeah. And it, it was away. supposed to be a. Jo- it was supposed to be a joke, and like, isn't that, isn't that yeah. so true about the world? That like, <laughs> so often these things where you're like, this isn't supposed to matter, or this is supposed yeah. to be a joke, or this is supposed so to be division. whatever, actually becomes the thing that is, you know. Yeah. And that book changed my entire, it changed yeah. the scope of my entire life. Like, and I, you know, I will spend the rest of my life telling the story of that place, and that is, you know, the biggest honor that I can possibly yeah. imagine.
1: How did your conversion,
2: if it did at all, play into the writing of that book? A- anyone who considers themselves, in any measure or in any way, a person of faith is is forced to confront the question of essentially, like, okay, how do you reconcile uh, belief in God with the fact that these horrific and horrible things happen in the world? You know, I think that that is that is a, that is a real and ongoing and, um, and present question for all of us. It's especially a present conversation for anyone who considers themselves a Catholic you know and so in one way one way in which it, it affected the book was that i you know it's just it was like a thing i had to i had to, to grapple with like where where if anywhere is is god in this in this mm-hmm. in this this horror um, in this cruelty in this um, suffering the other way i mean is it was in, in one way very literal but, but i actually think became a real sort of animating force for the book is you know the, the book itself is is set in the 1930s and the voices of imagined patients and stuff. At the colony, and it you know it's um, all the figures are imagined, but it's it's drawn from from a great deal of research into you know what life was actually like there at that time. And um, one of the one of the major sort of first major things I did um, when once I knew like oh, okay you're you're probably writing a book now um, is go and walk around the grounds of the of the current facility and, and walk with a little more intention than I than I'd gone before you know and, and sort of look around and. Test test the doors of abandoned buildings and mm-hmm. um, and peer around and you know it was remarkable to me that I I did you know all this poking around and at no point was anyone like who are you and what are you doing here because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, it it's still an active
1: yeah it's it's, other time, yeah really. it
2: was and it is and it uh, but I think uh, you know in the here's a PSA about how how screwed up American healthcare is I think you know very understaffed and not having the resources that it needed and I think people were busy and they were inside doing things and I right. you know I, was, I looked pretty non-threatening, and. The this, like tiny blonde girl in a wheelchair they were yeah. like that's you seem fine right but I went and I went anyway the, all this to say I went and walked around the physical plant of the colony and um, one of the things I was struck by is that there was a chapel and it was this like little low-slung brick box uh, and it literally had like a white piece of plywood that said like chapel on it and otherwise like you never would have <laughs> known you're like there's like not a universe where you would have known this was a church but it was there and it was it was clearly not like a contemporarily built like currently in use chapel it was like you know brick falling into disrepair and i was like oh there's a chapel in this in this place like what Mm. is that like where? like what are what were people doing in the chapel and like was the chapel for the patients or for Mm. the staff and i should say that i call them patients because i can't i can't it Feels important to me to not use the the term which was the term of the day, which is that they called them inmates. Inmates. They called them colony inmates, you know, like they were prisoners. And that's and we could have a whole another conversation about how screwed up the you know prison industrial complex is in America. And that's that's another that's a conversation for another day.
1: I know you've said before, you know, in another time you might have been there. So this wasn't necessarily just a place for. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't at all a place for people who were corrupt, or no, it and was... yeah, well,
2: except that, and this, and so this is the, so that language of corruption, yeah. right, is so interesting because the, the thing that the sort of allowed for the eugenics movement in America to 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 come alive and to flourish, right, was this was a just some pretty basic scientific misunderstandings of how genetics worked and how mm-hmm. defect works and how, but also. You know, a, a real sort of dangerous misunderstanding about what de- what defect was and where the value of human life was located, right? right? Because the the sort of whole idea behind eugenics was. We need to sterilize populations that have these undesirable traits, that have these corruptions in their bodies and their brains and their DNA that are, you know, that are they're not as smart as we want them to be, and their bodies don't work as well as we want them to work, and there are things going on in their brains that we don't understand, and in some cases they're just like they're um, uneducated and impoverished, and that is and that is somehow evidence of some sort of moral degradation, right? right? and th- those th- things and and so we need to we need to make it impossible for these people to have children because otherwise they will reproduce and and propagate, you know, a, an America that is full of these defective people. Right. These p- these people who are, I mean in a, in a very literal sense of the term corrupt And, yeah, and I would have been a prime candidate to be a colony patient. You know, I was this, um, especially, like, without any surgical intervention, you know, I was this very, very disabled child, and, and, you know, my body was spastic and twisted, and I couldn't walk, and... You know, and there was no evidence that I, I wasn't going to be severely intellectually disabled. You know, like, there's all the all of these things. And so, yeah, I would have been a prime candidate to be a, a colony patient. And it's often,
1: you've talked and written about how you are often assumed to be intellectually disabled. Yeah. Simply... Because you are in a wheelchair or yeah. because you have physical disability. And that's, and I, that is something you've you've had to work yeah, against your whole it's life. It's true.
2: But it's also and I and I, I always feel like it's so important to say this. Like, my life would not be less valuable if I was intellectually disabled, right? right? Like I would not be right. I would not be less. it would not my life would not be less valuable. I would not be less capable of 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 having a a, a life that was whole and complete and um you know, and and possessed of its own intrinsic, and so yeah, and I, I mean, right. It's not like you've earned your place on this earth. Because yeah, you're because a even the right, because even though my body is <laughs> right. is is whatever, my at least I'm smart, and I think that is a that's that, another dangerous narrative. That yeah, yeah, and that and that that dangerous narrative is a dangerous narrative that I've been trying to get out from under my whole life oh, in certain yeah. kinds of ways. You know, like you okay, because you're you are physically disabled, you. Are your life is only worthwhile if you are brilliant and flawless and never fuck up and never need anything other than the things that you have yeah. to ask for because you can't get around. Yeah. Like that That narrative I think was extremely pervasive for me and, and very, very damaging. Yeah. Um, so
1: how did... Catholicism change your conception of your body and your
0: worth.
2: And oh your, Lord! I mean, so we talked. I talk, and did, it. I talk, it did um, and it did in a way that is is ongoing and not clean. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think in some ways we and I, you know, and I I would say that I have a relationship with the church that is still, you know, very fraught and mm-hmm. full of conflict, and um, and it's it's that way because of some intrinsic questions that I have, and it's that way because of some, you know, really really terrible and unforgivable things that are happening on an institutional level yeah. um, in the church. And it's that way because I, while I believe in, in the theology and while I, I, I believe in God and I believe in the God that is, you know, evoked and conquered in the mass, um, I, I don't believe that the way that human beings put that belief into practice is uh, deeply flawed and mm-hmm. and deeply troubling. And um, and so there, there are all of these, these sort of extrinsic reasons why my relationship with the church is troubled and, and my relationship with it, my faith sort of intrinsically is is... Forever evolving, but I think that I think the, the the framework that that um, that one framework that Catholicism gave me, and one reason that I, I think I was drawn to um, to it over other, you know, over Protestant more Protestant theologies or over Evangelicalism or whatever, is Catholicism is such a bodily faith. You know, um, it's not a faith in which you know there's a, you know the the sort of ultimate goal in in Catholicism. Like if you believe in that theology, then then uh, you know, eventually there will be a, a, a resurrection in which we are all resurrected back into the bodies that we have. Mm. Um, and that was a really complicated thing to come in terms of because it meant, like, okay, if, if this is the theology that I believe in, like, this is it for me, this body, this yeah. one. That doesn't walk. That does hurt. That is, you know, like quote unquote, flawed in all of these ways. Um, and that was really troubling in certain kinds of ways. But in another way, it also gave me a framework to understand my body as neither a punishment or a mistake, but as the body that I was meant to have. And the one, who, and it's and in some ways, as complicated as that was, and as, as hard as it was, it also felt. Just true to me in a certain kinds of way like I am who I am because of the body that I live in You know, that's it's everything about the artist that I am about Mm. the friend that I am about the way that I love about the way that I think about the way that I move through the world is at least in part A product of the body in which I live my life, right? Like it is not I think it's I know and I'm guilty of it I often speak about my body my disability as if it is somehow separate from me, right? Like oh my body won't do this or like I you know, like I, yeah, I, I'm gonna refer your
1: next collection, right?
2: Yeah, bronze. it's called Places I've Taken My Body, which is right. a, an interesting title. And I thought about that: this
1: disconnection between yourself, yeah, what is authentically you, yeah, and this meat sack you got to drag around with you every day. Right.
2: right. So there's a very funny, um, and actually this is another thing I will credit Susanna for because we, we it's a joke now that we we told each other there's there's a series of memes you've probably seen them on the internet in which people append um, sort of contemporary captions, often quite snarky, to Renaissance paintings, oh, yes, yes. Um, and they're they're great. They're like endlessly funny. Yeah. But there's a really really funny one in which this 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 sort of courtly man is like leaning down solicitously over this this beautiful woman, and um and he says he says something like you know you're so. You're so beautiful, or you look so beautiful today, and she says, "Thank you, I love compliments about my flesh prison," <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, which is like, oh my god, you know. Um, and and Suzanne and I have this 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 ongoing joke where. If, if we you know if we're feeling particularly sort of undone by our 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 bodies or our physical realities we'll just text one another and be like, "Oh, I wish every day it wasn't bring your body to work day uh, yeah. like you know like I, like I, but the truth is like we can't unzip ourselves from our from our bodies and um and they are they are constitutive of who we are and sort of figuring out how to live inside that reality yeah. uh is I think you know one of the sort of major ongoing projects of my life, and it's not a um you know, my body and I, as much as I, I do understand and and, and believe, again, in, in some real emotional way, in some real intellectual way, and in some real theological way, that we are not uh, extricable from one another, that, that is, in fact, you know, that my body is intrinsically a part of who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do sort of, there are definitely days where I wake up and I feel like it's this, like, you know, it's this thing I have to carry around with me, and I just think, like, just just the once, could you, like, stay here? <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, but in, in Catholic theology, none, none of, can, of that. Never, right? It never, never be able to leave it. You know, and in some ways, maybe you know, there's, a, there's a way in which, like, you could think, like, oh, okay, well, like, if you were going to be anything, you had to be a Catholic, right? Because otherwise, otherwise it makes your life into this sort of, like, untenable thing where you're just waiting to be freed mm-hmm. from your, you know, like, and then whatever you're doing is just the, like, suffering that has to go on for you to, like, be like, you know, grow grow angel wings and alight and, uh, brilliantly from your from your flesh prison, as the case may be. And that doesn't feel, you know, because again, I mean, we've talked a lot about the ways in which I, f- you know, feel like my life has been full of pain or full of difficulty or full of struggle and strife. But the other thing that I should say is, like, most days, I love being alive, right? Like, most days, I am glad to be in the world. Like, my life does not feel like a giant waiting room, you know? Like... My life is my life. And the things that are going on here are, they matter, right? And that's, I mean, and that's the other reason I was drawn to Catholicism. Like, good works matter. The shit you do in the world is important, you know? Yeah. And so maybe... Our time here matters. Our time here matters. And maybe I had to be a Catholic because it was the, it was the, it was like the theology that I, that I ascribed to that, like, just didn't let me off the hook about it. It wasn't like, okay, you can just, you just need to wait this out and then your real life will start when you get out of this body. It's like, nope, sorry, sister, like... No. this is where you're at it's and you're this is it this, yeah. is, this is now and this is your this is your life and this is your body and it's not an accident and it's not a thing you're just waiting to be freed from and like what are you going to do with it what are you going to do about it how are you going to be well I'm so glad you're in this
1: world and in this church with me thank you thank you
0: you've been listening to the image podcast Produced by Cassidy Hall. Our music is by Sister Sinjin. Please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There, you can also learn more about all previous episodes of this podcast and find our show notes, links to books, and other resources discussed. You can also access back issues of the journal through the Image archive. We'll be back in two weeks with more exploration of art, faith and mystery.